Welcome. If you're just joining us, we are getting ready to jump back into our journey through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. Um, up to this point, we have seen quite a bit from Paul, and Paul has uh, gone through an encouraging introduction and uh, identified himself and identified who this, this letter is being written to uh, in the beginning of Romans, and then from there, um, encouraging uh, all the Christians in Rome and then helping them understand um, that they are of righteousness. They're not of darkness. They're not of sin. They are of righteousness. And these, uh, this letter is for those people that call themselves Christians in Rome. And so we see the gospel in and through um, this first part of chapter one. And then from there, he continues to be thankful. He continues to be steadfast in prayer, and he continues to approach the issue at hand, the issue of sin. Something that he makes very clear to the Roman people that we've seen um, virtually every week that we have been in Romans is, um, if you are of Christ, then you should not be of sin. If you are of Christ, then you should not be of the world. And then he goes on to say that no one will be with excuse. No one will be with an excuse. Those that are indigenous tribes and unknown parts of the world will not have an excuse. Those that um, live in developed cities and towns and wherever it may be around the world, they will not have an excuse. Because through general revelation, God reveals himself um, very clearly and he has woven himself in our very DNA, in our very makeup, in the very creation of who we are and when he made us from the very beginning of time. And so one of the things that we must understand and we must come to terms with is that very simple fact. That there is only one God and only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. No matter who you are, where you are you will not have an excuse. No one will. We will all come before him one day. And so we see that in and through the beginning of chapter 1, and then God begins to, to, to communicate to us, to explain to us through Paul in this letter the wrath that he has for the sinful people, for those who are turning away from him. And as we went on to verses 20, 21, 22, and 23, we see, we see the turning away and, and them, uh, those that have turned away, mortal man, uh, have exchanged the worship of God for the worship of idols. Why? As I said uh, a few seconds ago, God has woven himself within our very, very fabric of our DNA. We long to worship something. Everyone worships something, whether it is self, whether it is a sports team, a hobby, family, whatever it may be, we worship something if we do not worship God. There's an innate desire within each and every one of us, um, and sometimes we look around and we, we see people or we see things on TV, um, crimes that have been committed, like, I don't think this person worships anything. Well, as we begin to see... Uh, in our message this morning, in verses 24 and 25, people worship sin. 
worship sin. The thing is, it's all apart from God. Now, I must say that we are going to stay on the path that we've been on for the past several weeks in Romans. I know it is Christmas time, the celebration of our Lord's birth, um, and this is why we did a Christmas Eve service. I'm going to continue on through Romans this sun today, obviously, and next Sunday, um, and I will make some mentions of Christmas and so on and so forth, but we're going to stay on track. We're going to continue on. Um, I... As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, um, the sections that we're getting into in Romans chapter 1 are pretty hard-hitting, pretty convicting, um, and something that I think we all need to hear, uh, including myself. But during this time, I just want to encourage everyone um, to just uh, be mindful of the season, be mindful of uh, why we gather, um, those that we gather with. Um, And a lot of times we don't get to spend time with those people on a regular basis, and so may we be able to point uh, our time, our attitude, our discussion to Christ uh, as we begin to celebrate his birth. I'll uh, remind you, just as I remind my own own children every Christmas, is um, it's a celebration of Jesus's birth. It's Jesus's birthday, and understanding that, um, why do we receive gifts on Jesus's birthday? Do we uh, give gifts to all those that attend our birthday party and we don't receive any gifts on our birthday? No, usually we're the ones receiving the gifts on our birthday. And so a lot of times we look at this day as, as we look at Christmas as a day where we receive something and God does not. And we really forget the true understanding of this time. And so keep that in mind. Search your own hearts and what you can give to the Lord each day, not just for a moment, not just a single time. And the ultimate gift that we can give to him is our lives because he gave us the ultimate gift, which was his life. So remember that this Christmas. Remember that time as you gather. And I hope you can tune in to the Christmas Eve service that we have planned for 8 p.m. on the 24th. That being said, let me pray, and we will jump into our time together this morning. Lord God, thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for your word. We ask that you continue to bless us through our time together, and that um, this message would be of you and no one else. Ask that you would continue to reveal, to reveal the things in the dark places within our hearts, within our lives, within our minds, Lord God, to reveal them, to expose them, to ultimately drawing us closer to you, to sanctify us, to be more like Christ. So, Lord, we give this time to you. We worship you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I've, um, that I did when I first moved back to Merced, uh, when I resigned and left the church that I was at in Pennsylvania and came back, uh, I, took, I took a break before I started jumping into church again and really searching the Lord's will for my life and my family's life is I went fishing quite a bit. I'd go fishing probably three or four days a week, um, sometimes less, sometimes more. love taking my kids, even though once I get them set up to go fishing, about two minutes into it, they're throwing rocks and stones into the, into the lake and, uh, or when we catch a fish and 
Uh, my daughter Ellie reels it in, and it's a crawdad, and she drops the pole and runs. Um, and so those are some of the sweet memories that I have. And growing up, I remember my, my father taking me fishing many times. And so one of the things that I've been able to do recently is to go fishing with a couple of brothers um, here in the church and, um, and fishing some areas I never fished before. And one of the things um, that you do when you fish is your, your whole object is to try to catch something, right? Um, and that's why they call it fishing, not catching. And so the goal is to entice a fish, right, to bite your hook, right? And so you put something on there that's appetizing, um, that would cause curiosity or would cause a fish to strike it, um, and then hopefully you can um, be able to hook and bring in that fish. And the whole, the whole point is if you cannot entice that fish to bite your, your bait or to bite your hook, you're never going to catch fish. And so, some, so a lot of times, fishermen, they, they try to think of all kinds of different ways to make their own baits, to make up different baits, to different colors, different sounds, different motions, all these different things. And one of the things that I, as I thought about that and, and as I began to, to research and study on my own as far as some of the areas we've been fishing and how I can entice fish to bite my hook, um, I began to realize, like, wow, sin is the same way. Satan really does the same thing to each and every one of us. He tries to entice us. He tries to make things appetizing. He tries to make things in such a way that grasp our attention with, ult- with the ultimate goal to get us to bite. One of the things as Christians that we know very clearly Um, whether we do or not, I guess I should say, is that sin is a very slippery slope. And as soon as Satan gets us to bite, we get hooked very, very easily. Just as a fisherman goes out of his way to do everything he can to catch whatever he can, Satan does the same thing. And don't get me wrong, as believers, Satan cannot remove us from the hand of God, but he can snag us and pull us away from doing the Lord's will and living, living a life honoring and glorifying to him. Satan can dangle, attract, do whatever he can to try to get us to bite. And as Christians, we should know that it, Satan cannot hook us unless we bite. And that's one of the things that we need to have a clear understanding because sin is a slippery slope. Now, as we approach our our two verses, I don't want to say passage because it's only two verses this morning that we'll be covering, we'll begin to see what that slippery slope looks like. There are some things that Paul addresses here and these two verses that really are, are quite more deeper and fuller than just reading over it. There's so much more depth to these two verses, mainly verse 24, than a lot of other verses in this letter. Now, I know we've gone through quite a bit. Um, we've elaborated quite a bit on many verses leading up to this point. But I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on verse 24 
because it really begins to set the stage of that hook that has been set and not only been set, but began to reel in. And as people enter this slippery slope, men and women enter this slippery slope, we see how it's a slope that they can never, ever get out of or off of. So let's get into our scripture this morning, verse 24 and 25 of Romans chapter 1. If you're able to follow along as I read, we'll dive into our study this morning. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Very short two verses. Uh, At first glance, it might not seem like there's a lot there. It's just um, some of us may read. It's like, okay, it's very straightforward. We understand. We see. But what I want us to, to, to really take a good look at is the word usage and the context leading up, not, not only leading up to that, because we already covered that, but diving into verse 24. Now, it's, Paul starts off with therefore. Now, to understand therefore, we all know is we got to have to ask that question. Why is therefore therefore, right? And we go back and we can see verse 22, right? Go back two verses in Romans chapter 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They've exchanged the glory of God, right? For what? For creatures. God's God's main creation, us, his crescendo, so to speak, and, and all of creation, We are greater than all of what he's created. We are his greatest creation. And he says, because of their what? Claiming to be wise. And this is where I talked about how so many people that gain, they think they're so wise, they have so much knowledge, but in essence, they become more and more dumb, ignorant, and understanding that they, are falling further and further away from God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's, there's no smart Christians. There's, there's plenty. I've met plenty. I've met some that have some of the most prestigious degrees out there that you could get, Harvard, MIT, Princeton. And they are godly men and women. But what this scripture is saying, apart from God, all of it is frivolous. All of it is nothing. And that these smart individuals, they're so smart, they're falling away from God. They seem to be wise in their own minds, but they are not. And we can see that so much, and it is so prevalent today. So therefore, because of that, they're exchanging the glory of God. They're exchanging the worship of God for what? These idols, creation, right? Instead of understanding who God is as a mortal God. We're exchanging it for mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up. Now, we're going to take a good look at this because people cannot turn their backs on God. Can't. We simply can't. 
If we turn our backs on God and God's continuing to try to get our attention, continuing to try to get our attention, we understand that there are those that are going to be saved and there are those that are not. And the ones that are not continue to turn their backs on God and continue to run away from God and walk away from God, however it may be. God gave them up. We're going to look at that word gave. And to be honest, you can look at it as gave up, but in the Greek, it, the, the word gave, that's the, the Greek word for gave there, right? Para de dumi. Para de dumi. Okay? Not de, d, I should say d. Para de dumi. Okay? It's to give into the hands of another. To give into the hands of another. Now, I put on there in parentheses, I think, yeah, uh, Satan. Because we're going to see in the next one, it says about a power, right? To give into the hands of another. To give over into one's power. Okay? This is what God's doing. This is the word that is used here in this verse. Therefore, God gave them up. What does that mean? Therefore, God gave them into the hands of another. Therefore, God gave them, in, gave them over into one, to another's power. God, he, give, he gave them up. It also means to deliver over to, to hand over, okay? Now, I'm going to talk about it later, but we're going to dig into this quite a bit. But this really has a judicial tone to it. Why? Because during judgments and different things in front of the courts, this word was used during that time almost as if someone is in custody and they go to trial, right? And then the penalty is death. So then those that have the individual in custody, they hand them over to the executioner, so to speak. They give them over to another power, ultimately to carry out the sentencing. And we'll look at that a little bit more later briefly. So para di dumi. Para di dumi, the hand to hand over, right? To give up, okay? So we see that there. So therefore, what? God gave them up. So since man decided to give up God and worship creature and culture, and this is something that we see in the text as creatures, right? And different things, and, but we also see different idols, idol worship in, in the essence of um, the different cultures of the time in Rome. We don't have time to go in to the culture of Rome. Okay, we looked into that in the introduction to the book of Romans. Um, you can look at that more. But it's very clear that the people in the church, and remember this letter is written to those that are in the church, to Christians in Rome. It says, look, you don't belong to this group. This is you here. This is what this group looks like. And this is the path that God has laid for this group of people. Don't be in this group of people. And so it says, therefore, God gave them up, right? So since they decided to give up God, okay, because they exchanged God, right? The worship of God, the worship of the creator, they exchanged that for what? The worship of creatures and the worship of culture. And so now God gave men and women into the control of Satan, and the sinful things they what? They preferred over God. God would not um, violate man's free moral will. And I know some of us 
wonder about that sometimes, right? Well, where, where's our free will that we have? And that's a free moral will. We have, a, um, we have the ability or the freedom, I must say, to make decisions morally, okay? Just like going back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve had one rule to follow, one loss. <laughs> Don't touch these trees. Don't touch them. Leave them alone. You can eat whatever, but not this one, right? They failed. They failed. Eve went, bought into a lie. She exchanged the truth for a lie when Satan appeared to her in the form of a serpent and said, did God really say that? Did God really say you can't do that? God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit because this fruit's going to open your eyes and help you realize that you're a God too. And Eve bought into the lie. Just as many of us buy into the lie and we get hooked by Satan and we fall into that slippery slope to where, well, you know what? The scripture says this, but does it really say that? Does it really say we shouldn't do this? Does it really say we shouldn't do that? God's understanding He's graceful and merciful. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. There's always time. But see, here's the thing. God doesn't ultimately judge you initially on the at each individual action. God's what? He sees your heart and knows where your heart is. So if your heart's not in the right place, even though your brain is saying, well, I can do this, but I'll just repent later or I'll just do this later. Ultimately, it's coming from where? From the heart. And we're going to see later on in these two verses why the heart is such a big part of these things. And we've already seen it up to this point. We're going to see it even more. Paul continues to hit on that very simple fact to understand that, look, we do have a free moral will. God does not make us sin. God does not cause us to sin. Satan's out there dangling a bunch of hooks, waiting to see one of us to bite so he can hook us and reel us in thing is, is we need to understand that even though we have free moral will, that doesn't mean we should do whatever we want, when we want, how we want. Why? Because we must remember the gospel message. We've been bought, what, for a price. We've been bought for a price. That price is what? Jesus died on the cross. And so if we've been bought for a price, we no longer belong to who? Ourselves. So therefore, since we've been bought for a price, we don't belong to ourselves. Who do we belong to then, therefore? God. So it's not an essence or it's not an element of understanding that we belong to ourselves. This is my body. I get to do what I want when I want. But it's we belong to God. And do we have that heart attitude? So yes, God is sovereign. But we have a free moral will that we decide to do right or we decide to do wrong just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. Even though we have free will, um, if you don't belong to God, you cannot please him. He understands. Um, we cannot please. If you don't belong to God, you cannot please him and you cannot understand him. So then you are what? Hostile to God. You can't please him. You can't understand him. I'm, I'm quoting from a passage. I think I'm going to have it up there. It's our next slide, Romans 8. You can turn with me there 
it might be a while before we get there. So some of you might be uh, graduated and, and on to a new church by then, by the time we get to Romans 8. But Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 5, we can read here very clearly. I've quoted this before many times in the past. It says, for those who live according to the flesh. What is the flesh? The flesh is sinful, right? So those, are those who live according to sin set their minds on the things of the flesh, set their minds on the things of sin. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Okay, it's capitalized. That's a, that's a name, it's a direct reference to the Holy Spirit, okay? So those who set their minds on the Holy Spirit live according to the Holy Spirit, live according to God. Next verse, verse uh, 6. For to set the mind on the flesh, okay, to, to set the mind on sin is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Okay, so verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh or set on sin is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing pleasing to God. That's why we constantly need to do a heart check, to do an attitude check. Where is my mindset? Is it how close I can get to sin without sinning or how much I can get away with? Or you know what? I'll live however I want to live now and I'll do the God stuff later. It, it, that doesn't work right now. God judges us constantly. We're going to see as we continue on in Romans 1, this judgment take place. So when men and women persisted in following their total deprived sinful nature, God allowed them free reign. Total depravity, okay, I know this is a theological term, but this is a term or an understanding that we are born into sin and innately or, or within our own selves, we, there's nothing in us that's going to tell us we need to do right things. We need to do good things. We need to go to God unless God is the one drawing us near to him. There's nothing of our sinful nature, our sinful flesh that is ultimately going to bring us to God. What brings us to God is God. General revelation, right? Conviction, right? Conscience. Remember, God created us, so he has woven himself within each and every one of us in our DNA, right? Thing is, we reject it. We push away from it. So when men and women persist in following, right, sin instead of God because of our total depravity, because of our total sinfulness, total understanding of we desire uh, the, what the flesh wants, the flesh wants, right? And we go after it, we run after it. So God says, you know what? That's what you want. Fine, you can have it. You can have it. So let's continue on. It says, so God totally gave them up. God totally gave them up. And I'm going to elaborate even more. Don't worry. We're hopefully break this down enough that we all can grasp and understand it. Because a lot of times what we hear is like, well, God is love and God loves everyone. So it doesn't matter how you live. God's going to love you enough to save you. Love is powerful more than sin and love conquers all and all these things. Uh, that's great. But that, that's only applied to what? to the cross. That's how much God loves us that he would sacrifice his own son 
in order to save us. But apart from that type of love, there's nothing. There's nothing. What do I mean by that? There's nothing that can ultimately, what, mend or pay the price, right, for the fracture that sin has created in each and every one of our lives at birth, being born of the flesh, born of the sinful nature, separating us eternally from God. So God totally gave them up, all of them, into the hands of Satan, into the hands of sin. Why is that? Why is that? So what does this imply? So going back to the verse 24 says, therefore God gave them up, right? Okay. These are people that have already turned their back on God. These are people that are already sinning. These are people that are already what? What we've been seeing. They don't understand God. They don't know God. They don't desire God. Okay. So then it says, God gave them up. He gave them up. So this implies what? That he still had some influence. He still had some, what, care. He still had something to do with their lives. He still had something to do with their lives. Now, as we continue to listen on the teachings of verse 24, understand this. We don't know where people are in this journey, whether it's a spiritual journey and we're saved and we're on the spiritual journey or people are just on the journey of of life in general and they're living in the flesh. We don't know where people are. They can either be, you know what, God's going to continue to work on them and work on them and work on them and work on them. Or it could be what we're going to start seeing revealed to us through the rest of Romans 1. You're going to see that very clearly this morning. Man, they're abandoned by God. They're abandoned by God. I know that's a hard concept for us to really to grasp or understand, but this is what this verse teaches. God gave them up. God gave them up. This implies that up to a certain point, God is a gracious, loving father putting up with the spoiled, the spoiled sinful brats, right? Which we, I'm sure we all can relate to. The total depravity of humans. To some degree, God is preserving each and every one of our lives. Whether uh, um, if we're not saved and we're still living in sin, we don't know Jesus Christ, we're not a true believer, and we're living our path, God still has a preservation on that person's life. Why? Because ultimately, yes, God wants everyone to be saved, but will everyone be saved? No, we see that very clearly in Scripture. But the thing is, is that as, as we began to turn our backs more and more on God, God begins to, what, release his hand of grace and mercy and remove it from us. Now, some of us may have heard this before as a, maybe an umbrella of grace, right? Or the, the hand of grace of God being upon certain people, right? There are times that I can look back in my life before I was a Christian and I could see, man, that was a close call. God preserved my life. Man, life could have been much worse if this happened. Wow, I didn't really need this, but I, I, I didn't deserve it. Why did I get that? Sometimes it's hard for us to really comprehend how God conducts this, but he is sovereign. It's all for his greater purpose, his greatest, greater plan, 
his will and not ours. There's some things we're just not going to understand. There are some people that are like, that person does not deserve to be saved. And God saves them. It's very difficult for some people to really accept. But we need to understand this. There is a point in all the lives of the lost where God says, you know what? Your time's up. And he removes his hand of grace. And we see, this is what we are going to see over the next several verses through Romans chapter 1. The removal of hands, great. The removal of God's hand of grace. And so what God does is as he removes his hand of grace, and, and, and to us, we're like, man, that's, that's sinful. That's bad. What they do is bad. It's like, wait a second. That's with some of the mercy and grace that God has. And he's like, wait until I remove that. And as he removes that, then you see an ultimate, a plunging headfirst into sin, into the world, into darkness, into death. A life of constant and increasing sin. This is the only explanation for um, the disgust and and filth and heart-wrenching things that we hear of, that we might see. Um, It's all acts by the fallen. And the thing is, is, as God continues to remove the restraint that he has on sin and the restraint that he has on Satan, it becomes much more intense, much more grotesque, much more difficult for us to fathom or even palate. The thing is this, is we can see it with, with Job where Satan was going to go and, and put these hardships on Job and God says, well, I'll allow you this, but not that. Well, I'll allow you to do this, but not that. And we can see that that is a depiction, that is a story of the umbrella of grace that God has. Now, yeah, Job was a righteous man. And it just goes to show that even righteous men and women go through trials and hardships, but ultimately is for God's greatest purpose. But for those who ultimately turn their back on God, God removes this umbrella of grace, this hand of grace from their lives. So as we continue to study Romans, remember the word paradidomai, paradidomi. Sorry, I mispronounce that sometimes. But what we looked at, the, the giving up of, to give in to the hands of another power. And this is what God does. This is why it's so important that we um, continue to live as God commands us to live, not the way we ultimately just flippantly want to go through life or subjecting ourselves to the fleshly desires. The majority of the time, there are desires of the world, the desires of Satan, not the desires of God, and we confuse ourselves, which is which sometimes. Don't get me wrong, as we continue on in this time, in this letter with Paul, um, Paul is talking about those that are lost. But I think so many times, again, the Christian, the saved individual is the one who falls for these traps and gets led astray. 
Don't let that happen to you. Now, why? Why is this? Well, verse 24 continues to imply that God gave them up in a way of righteous judgment as a punishment, as a punishment here on earth. They don't, don't get me wrong, there is a future punishment, right? An eternity in which we know, right? So there's an eternity for believers, right? Glory, and then there's an eternity for non-believers. What do we know that as? The lake of fire, right? Hell. And so the people exchange the truth for a lie, so God ultimately gives them what they want. And we see this here in verse 24, this judgment here on earth, the consequence for their sin. And a lot of times, we don't receive the full consequences for our sins. We don't. But in this case, God leaves them to themselves. He's like, you are not going to experience any of the grace and mercies that I have given you before. So God's uh, grace and mercy protects us from ourselves, and um, so many never even realize it. And that's one of the things that I, I think that as Christians we fail to see sometimes is God's grace and mercy. I think a lot of times we apply grace and mercy to our salvation, and, and we feel that it ends there. Um, and it doesn't. I mean, it, it, it's, it's God's grace and mercy that we have a job, or we can pay our bills, or we can go to school, or we can walk, right? We're not bedridden. We have, we're, we're healthy. It's God's grace and mercy that we have what we have. And I think we take it for granted as believers, as we see here in verse 24, that uh, leading up to verse 24 and going into it, because they exchanged this truth, right, just as we saw in Genesis 3, as Adam and Eve exchanged the truth that God gave them, right, for a lie, a lie from who? A lie from Satan, when he came in and says, oh, did God really say this, right? They exchanged the truth for a lie. Let's... Um, I don't think I have it up here, but let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Sometimes there's passages or things that I, I want to look at or go into that I, I don't always have in my slides. I might add it later. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. So as Adam and Eve exchanged the truth for a lie, we're going to see Satan approach Jesus in the same thing, right? A lot of us know this story already. I'm going to read it. I'm just a little bit of it. It says, again, the devil took him, him being Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus rebuked Satan with Scripture. Adam and Eve gave in to the lie and bought into the hook and exchanged the, a lie, right, or exchanged the truth for a lie. Jesus did not. 
He did not give in to it. He rebuked Satan. He knew what the truth was. And what Satan was telling him was not truth. See, here's the thing is all of us as believers need to be able to do the same thing. We need to be able to put ourselves in the situation that Jesus is in to where someone, particularly Satan or anything of Satan, right, trying to give us a lie, trying to to cause us to dupe us and exchanging God's truth for a lie. See, the problem is, is we fail to be in this. And if we fail to be in our word, we fail to understand truth. Like I've said before, you're an anorexic Christian if all you get from the Bible is on Sunday mornings. If that's all you get is Sunday mornings, it's the only scripture you get, you are anorexic, you are malnourished, you will begin to fade away spiritually. Not that you will lose your salvation, but your spiritual growth, your spiritual strength will all be stunted will wither away, will not produce fruit. Why is that? Because you will be susceptible to exchanging the truth for a lie. Why is that? You have to know the truth to be able to identify a lie. Like I said, no one will be with an excuse. I will hit on that a little bit more later. But the problem is is this. Do we rebuke sin with the truth? You might be thinking, well, Pastor Raph, it's quite a bit for me to know all the Scripture. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying at all. I I don't know all the Scripture. I've read through the Bible many times. I've taught on a large portion of Scripture, studied it, written papers on it. I, I am still learning each and every time I'm in God's Word and study it. But see, that that's the reason why we need to be in it. We need to be in it. We need to be in it. A lot of times what happens is, as we get older, you know, we, we begin to see um, more elderly people be in the word constantly, and it's like they're, they're cramming for a final exam. Let me get in the word now because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in front of God soon, and I need to be able to, you know. And it's like, that's not how it works. We're not judged on the last moments of our life. For some, I mean, that might be the case, and some accept Christ late on in life. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and Scripture teaches on that. But the problem is, is as believers, we do have an accountability that we will one day come before God and he'll say, what have you done with what I've given you? Is he going to reply, well done, good and faithful servant? Do not exchange the truth for a lie. Don't bite on the lies that Satan has. Don't give in to worship of creature and culture. Now, I hope this really gives you a a, a good and deeper understanding of this. Therefore, God gave them up. Because I've heard so many debates on this very thing. But when you really dig into it, there's so much in there. First, the therefore, understanding the several verses that are there before you get to verse 24. And then God gave them up. Understanding what, what does it mean God gave them up? What does that mean? And we see it very clearly if we look deeper into the words and the context of the Scripture. So now Paul continues on, and now he gives us a glimpse of some of the details of what did he give them up to? What did he give them up to? He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. We see that word heart again, to impurity. 
to impurity, the lust of their hearts to impurity. Now, since they have abandoned God and God, what, fully abandons them to their sin. So it's like, you know what? I'm going to remove my hand of grace. You're no longer going to be protected by any means from what I have. You've completely turned your back on me. You've completely abandoned me. Okay, now you will experience a life truly without anything that I'm a part of, any influence, any protection, any grace, any mercy. Paul introduces two parts, lust and impurity. Now what is interesting is the word usage for impurity here. We're going to look at that here for a moment. It says, it's basically a term used for decaying and rotting flesh. Decaying and rotting flesh. As I studied this, now I've, I've studied it before, but I studied it far more this time than I have in the past. It became very revealing to me. And it, it made this word impurity like be even stronger, right? It's like going to the graveyard and someone who was buried, right, a year ago, or say six months ago, you go and you dig up that grave and you open up that, that coffin, their corpse would be that impurity. A dead, rotting corpse. Rotten flesh. This is what that word means. This impurity, this rotting flesh, this rotting corpse is ultimately how God sees them. Why? Because what does the scripture tell us? We are dead in our trespasses. We are dead in our trespasses. That's why with Christ, right, we are born again. We are made new. We have a new heart. We are a new being. We are a new creation, metamorphosis, right? We are no longer a corpse. But here, they're a rotting corpse. The thing is, is this impurity is something that I think we really glance over as just this, this word. It's like, okay, something not pure, something maybe dirty, right? There's far stronger word usage than that. So because God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, right? So God gave them up, right? The rotting flesh, the rotting corpses that they are, what type of impurity it says right here to lust. It doesn't. It says lust with an S, okay? And implies multiple. It doesn't imply single. It's not just lust. It's lust, right? Greek word for this is epithemia. Epithemia, the word lust, it means a passionate craving, a longing, a deep desire, okay? A deep desire. Now, where is this deep desire? Where is this passionate craving? In their hearts. In their hearts. See, here's the thing. On the outside, we can come to church. On the outside, we can say, oh, I'm a Christian. On the outside, we can say, I read my Bible. On the outside, we could say a prayer. But in your heart, what, is you, what are you passionate for? Are you a rotting corpse? Are you passionate for the things of this world? Have you exchanged the truth for a lie? Are you after the things of this world to worship creature and culture? Are these the things that define you? 
See, the thing is, is that God gave them up. And what did he give them up to? To the impurities that are within their heart, the rotting corpses, the rotting flesh. And he sees the heart. He knows the heart. That's the thing. We can't fool God. We're great at fooling each other. Great at it. That's one of the things with social media, right? We can look at social media like, wow, this person has an amazing life. They're doing all these things. and take... You start digging into a lot of those families' lives, it's not what it may seem. And what does that do to those that don't have a life that look like that? It causes jealousy, idolatry, depression. Why doesn't my life look like that? I can remember a few years back, not that long ago, they used to, they started coming out and, and really talking bad about the magazines because the magazines would do so much airbrushing and everything and making, you know, these women look a certain way when they in reality didn't look that way. They're like, well, the, the self-esteem that um, you're, you're causing these young women to have is, is, is negative, it's not healthy. And magazines really shouldn't do that. And they started portraying something. It's like, okay, this is what women really look like, or this is that. And, and the thing is, is that what they put out is not always what reality is. Let's say a very small percentage of what they put out is reality as far as media, advertisement, these different types of things. It's how... It's amazing how quickly we move away from these things and move into even more impurity, more sin, more lust of the heart. Turn me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, just a little, if you're in Romans, just go a little bit to the right. Now we've gone from, therefore God gave them up, right? to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. Impurity, epithemia, a passionate craving, a loyal or a longing, uh, a deep desire in their hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. Okay? Paul's talking. He's talking about visiting them again, Right? And he's, he's, those in the church, in, in Corinth, he, he wants them to repent. He wants them to turn away. He's already confronted them once. First Corinthians, now in second Corinthians, this letter here, and he, 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 he's writing them this. And he says here, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. He says, I'm fearful that you're going to still be living in sin after all that I've written to you, after all that I've said to you. And when I come and visit, you're still going to be the same way that you were. And it's not acceptable. I fear that. He says, I'm, I'm afraid that God's going to humble me. And why is that? Because Paul always, always gives the benefit of the doubt. And he speaks so highly of, of the converts and of the churches, and he, he encourages them, but he has no qualms with what? Confronting them about sin. None whatsoever. Paul has always been that person to confront sin. Always. 
thing is, as we see here in 2 Corinthians, is I'm fearful that you're going to continue to be living in sin, that my letters aren't enough. When I visit you, you're just still going to be living in sin because you've exchanged the truth for a lie. Keep going a little bit to the right to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Don't worry, we're still in verse 24. We'll get to verse 25 soon. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Lust of the heart, sexual sin that is apparent. Um, and we can see very clearly that this is the direction of Paul as we get into the last part of verse 24. Back in Romans, he talks about the dishonoring of their bodies. So now we see that, it, that there's this lust of the hearts, these impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Where is it coming from? It's coming from the heart. It's coming from the heart. We've looked at sexual immorality and adultery, right? Physically, emotionally, mentally. We've looked at spiritual adultery where we basically were creating, uh, committing adultery spiritually towards God, exchanging the truth for a lie, exchanging the priority of God for the things of this world, the things of the culture, the things that, that we want. We want what we want. And a lot of times we think we deserve this and we deserve that. In reality, all we deserve is hell. And that's the thing. We really began to become complacent with the grace and mercy that we've received because of Jesus Christ. And this is all coming from the heart. Turn me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? One of the things we need to understand is that we see the, the, the eyes are a window into the heart, Right? And we don't truly comprehend how much this world impacts us. We don't truly understand how much Satan gets to us without us even knowing it. What we watch, what we listen to, what we read, what we give our time to, what we continue to put within ourselves. And the thing is, is that it begins to change our mind. It begins to change our heart. And the thing is, is as we store up darkness in our minds and our heart, it begins to take root. It becomes a foothold in our lives. And Jesus, as he's teaching this, he goes, look, you need to put light in. You need to put light in. And what is that light? That is God's word. That is truth. That is the living water. The living word. 
But he says, but if you're putting darkness within you, how great is that darkness? How great is that darkness? You can look at it in this way to where within each and every one of us, there is a a black dog and a white dog, right? Representing of good and evil, so to speak, uh, representation of of spiritual um, spiritual health versus sinful nature. Which one are we feeding more? These two dogs are constantly at war with one another, constantly fighting each other. Which one are we going to feed more? Because that's the one that's going to win in our hearts. That's the one that's going to win in our minds. See, the thing is, is that as we continue to exchange the lie of Satan right, and begin to fall more, fall more subject to creature and culture, right, we become numb to being able to identify what is right and what is wrong, what is honoring to God, what is not, what is light, and what is darkness. Don't fall into the trap. Don't Bite the hook that Satan sets for you. Don't allow the ways of the flesh and the world to snag you and push you and pull you onto that slippery slope of sin. So as we see, Paul, he continues on and he transitioned to, from dishonoring of their bodies among themselves to 25 because what? Because they, so he gives a reason why they did this. And we already kind of know, but the interesting thing with Paul, he likes repetition and he repeats himself in different ways and and hopes that, look, I'm going to make this abundantly clear. If you didn't get it the first five times I presented it to you, let me present it to you in another way in hopes that this will even what? Cement the fact or cement the point in which I'm trying to make. Paul is going out of his way now to make Sure, his point is made, understood, and taken seriously. Ultimately, he is, there's no excuse to not understand what Paul is getting at, the point that Paul is making. They exchanged it, and we see it again. We've already seen it before several times, and we get to see it again here. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's why it's so important that we're in the word. That's why I push it on you guys so much. Be in God's word. Be in God's word. Be in God's word. Why? Because time and time again, we are bombarded by the world every single day. Movies, music, social media, things that we see, whether uh, on TV or in this world. And we exchange the truth for a lie. Do I really have to read my Bible every day? Should I really pray to God every day? Do I really need to do this? Do I really need to do that? Oh, well, do I really need to give more than $10 and tithe to God? Do I really need it? And we exchange it. And the reason I know this is because I did it. I was there. I've been in that place before as a new believer, as a new Christian. 
thinking that I didn't need to read my Bible. I didn't need to pray. I didn't need to fellowship. I didn't need to serve. I didn't need to give. But see, here's the thing. It comes down to the heart. So in my heart, I didn't believe. I was like, oh, that's not really necessary. I don't need that to get to heaven. And then I began to realize when I was challenged by a pastor many, many years ago, it's like, well, is it really about that? Because ultimately what I'm doing is I exchanged a lie to where I belong to Christ and I'm a new creation to where, well, let me just do what I need to do as far as the minimum to enter heaven. And I am exchanging the free grace of God for works. And I didn't realize that. And it's nothing to do with that. It's nothing to do with works. And so I was like, okay, well, since it's nothing to do with works, I don't need to do those things. But then... But then what was revealed to me was this. I don't do those things because I need to do works. I do those things because it is a direct correlation and reflection of my love for God. That's why we do them. But see, what we do as believers, we exchange the lie as to, well, I'm already saved or I don't have to do that. My salvation's not based on this. My salvation's not based on that. Oh, you might be correct, but then your heart is being revealed through those comments, through that understanding. And what's the understanding? Oh, I don't need to do works. I don't need to do that. And so I don't want to do them. And so it's revealing your heart that the love for God is weak or absent. We need to understand that there will be no excuse and we cannot exchange this lie. Cannot exchange the truth of God. But see here, for the non-believer, Paul is making a point for them to see, look, this is what they exchanged it for. Don't fall into that category. Don't get onto that slippery slope. Why? Because they exchanged the creator for creation. They exchanged righteousness for sin. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They exchanged Jesus for themselves. They have made a God out of themselves. They have now worshiping self. We will all long to worship something. They exchanged ultimately the truth for a lie. And I don't want us to come to Romans 1 and think, it's like, okay, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not this person. I'm not that bad. I want us to come to this and say, wow, why do I reflect some of this? How can I relate to some of this? I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I shouldn't relate to these, these sinful people who've completely abandoned God. I should, there should be no correlation whatsoever between my life and theirs. Turn with me to Matthew 16. I don't, it's not going to be up there. I'm, I apologize. This is another one that I, Matthew chapter 16. Don't worry, we're almost done. Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. <clears throat> says this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
what people are not understanding is that they're essentially exchanging their soul. Salvation, that they're exchanging God, Jesus, to gain immediate gratification, the things of this world, the things of flesh. But what good is it if we are to gain this whole world but lose our soul? What good is it if we spend an eternity in hell for a, 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 a moment of vapor of gratification here on this earth? See, the thing is, is that so many, so many people are nearsighted. They're nearsighted. What do I mean by that? They can't see beyond what's right in front of their face. They can't see what's right in front of them. And as Christians, sometimes we get that way too. We can only see what's right here. We don't see what's in eternity. We don't see heavenly things. We don't have heavenly thinking. I taught on that a, a few months back and um when we were going through our last study and have a heavenly mindset, have be heavenly thinking. The thing is, they're nearsighted. We just want right, right now, instant gratification. And we give in to the flesh and we give in to the sinful nature and we give in to this and we begin to compromise. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. And we begin to fall for this great exchange not the exchange of Jesus giving his life for us, but the exchange of the truth for a lie. So as we see these totally deprived, sinful men and women completely turning their back on God and God giving them up to the lust of their hearts, to the impurity, to the rotten flesh, Exchanging the truth about God for a lie. They exchanged it. They exchanged it. Ultimately, they exchanged Jesus for the world. What have you exchanged? What have you exchanged? Are you exchanging the world for Jesus, your sin for righteousness, lies for truth, darkness for light? Are you exchanging those things? Or is it the other way around? You're exchanging the truth for a lie. Jesus for yourself. Light for darkness. Righteousness for sin. What are you exchanging? Turn with me to John chapter 8. We're going to close with this. John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. What have you exchanged Jesus for? Do you understand the scriptures? Do you understand the words that Jesus speaks? Do you understand the words in which you read in scripture? Do you understand the words that are being taught to you? Do you understand the prayers that are being prayed? Jesus says you don't understand because you're not of God. If you don't understand, then we begin to need to ask that question, where am I spiritually? Have I exchanged Jesus for a lie? Have I exchanged Jesus for this world? Have I exchanged Jesus for my own self and gratification? Am I seeking my kingdom and my righteousness instead of God's? In the time of this season, in remembrance of Jesus, Jesus' birth, we need to remember the price that has been paid. We need to remember Joseph and Mary, a young couple betrothed to be married. The betrothal during that time was a commitment greater than an engagement. It's like they're already married. It's just the ceremony hasn't happened. And now she's of child. What did the world do? The world rejected them. The thing is, we need to understand our fear of the world rejecting us should not keep us from Jesus. Just as Joseph feared being rejected because the woman that he was to marry was with child. He wanted to divorce her. But God said no. One of the things we need to understand in and through all of this is God's word and to not exchange it. In the time such as this and the season that we are in and celebrating the Lord's birth, don't exchange it for the world. In the midst of all the presents and food and family, remember Christ. Ultimately, Remembering the cross. Because as we see here in Romans chapter 1. These people have completely rejected Christ. Completely rejected God. And are so far, so deep in their sin. God gives them up. So don't find yourself on that slippery slope of sin. Don't find yourself in the same circles, 
the same patterns, the same anything as these people that we see here in Romans 1. But may we be encouraged by the ultimate sacrifice that has been given for each and every one of us. Because even though when we didn't love God, we didn't deserve anything from him, he sent his son to die for us on that cross. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for our time together this morning. My prayer is that we would all, yes, be convicted, but also be encouraged that you've given us a way that you didn't leave us in this state of sin and depravity. You didn't abandon us there. But you sent a way, a way to reconcile our sins, a way to reconcile our broken relationship with you. And that is in and through Jesus Christ. So Lord, may you continue to bless us and watch over us and in and through that, May we look to you more than ever. May we turn to you more than ever. And and ultimately, may we submit to you more than ever and not exchange your truth for the lies of this world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.